I'd like to invite you now at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we make our way through this letter, the Apostle Paul penned, uh, we uh, find ourselves in the midst of chapter 7, and I'd like to uh, begin reading in verse 17 down to verse 24. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers... In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning the person and work of your son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us ears to hear and eyes to see all that Christ has done for us, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that he has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, uh, Martin Luther, in one of his early treatises entitled The Freedom of the Christian, he wrote the following. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Well, Luther admits that these two phrases appear to be contradictory. Indeed, this is what we call a paradox, something that seems to contradict itself, but upon further reflection, we see a profound truth. And Luther's point in this treatise is that only when we as Christians recognize the freedom that we have in the presence of God through Christ Jesus, are we only then truly enabled to begin to love and serve our neighbor? Indeed, we find in God's grace the freedom, but we also find in God's grace the ability to serve. And in this service, we find true freedom. Well, right off the bat, Martin Luther admits that he didn't come up with this on his own. Indeed, he got it from the Apostle Paul. And, and we find, in particular, in the book of 1 Corinthians, this truth coming out. As Paul will later on say, that although I am free, I have made myself a slave to all. This paradox of, of, of uh, freedom through service, or service in the midst of freedom, is ultimately what we see in our passage today. 
In, the, in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul so far has been addressing the topics of marriage and divorce and singleness in the Christian life. And he will continue along this vein for the rest of the chapter. But here in, in, verses, uh, in, in our passage today, he pauses and expands his purview from uh, addressing issues of marriage, divorce, and singleness to other issues in life, such as the difference between Jew and Gentile and slave and free. In the previous verses, 12 through 16, the Apostle Paul spoke specifically to those believers who found themselves in a, in a marriage relationship where their, their, their spouse was an unbeliever. And there in those verses, Paul tells them, do not get a divorce. If your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you and, and happy and content to stay in the marriage relationship, do not divorce them. And so we see here a tendency where uh, these newly uh, converted Christians were thinking that their new identity, their new status in believers somehow would enable them to make a major change in their life. And somehow their new status as believers would do away with the social, social structures that they find themselves in and in that particular situation would maybe allow them to divorce their unbelieving spouse. The Apostle Paul there and in our passage today says, no, when you become a believer, that doesn't mean everything should change. The social structures that we find ourselves presently in are there appointed by God and they are not eradicated or done away with simply because you have become a Christian. And so we see Paul's point here as he, as he expands the topic of marriage, divorce, and singleness to the other related issues of the difference between Jew and Gentile or the difference between slave and free. We see all of these major social distinctions that we have in life are all addressed here in our passage today. And it's interesting if you recall what Paul says in Galatians 3.28, that as many as are baptized in Christ have put on Christ, and he says, here, there is not Greek and Jew. Here, there is not slave and free. Here, there is not male and female. So in one sense, those social distinctions are eclipsed, but they do not go away entirely. And so that's why the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 17 that as the Lord has assigned to us, here he's he's saying that our present situations in life, whether you are here today and you are a male, perhaps you are a husband or a father, or you, perhaps you are a female, you're, perhaps you're a wife or you're single, or if you're a teacher or a student or a butcher or baker or a candlestick maker, each and every one of us have, uh, are, have particular situations in life. We need to recognize that that has all been sovereignly orchestrated by the Lord. And who you are in life is a gift from God. God has appointed you to live the life that you have. And he has given that to you as a gift. Well, this is a radical, radically different perspective from what we're used to thinking. We get up in the morning, we go to school, we go to work, and we think this is just our lot in life. But in fact, the Apostle Paul says, no, this is God's gift for you. He has personally appointed you to live this particular uh, uh, life that he has given to you. And so Paul says, as God has assigned this to you, he's assigned this to you as he has called you. 
to do it. Now, when Paul talks about you being uh, us being called in verse 17, he's he's referring this call that he's talking about is what we refer to as his effectual call. This is when the Holy Spirit creates faith in our hearts through the preaching of the gospel and summons us into the fellowship of believers. The Apostle Paul's been uh, referring to our call. He does that throughout chapter 1, and he's talking about how God has called us into the fellowship of his Son. And so he says, the life that you were living when God called you into the fellowship of his Son, you need to lead that life. Don't seek to change it, but lead the life that God has called you to walk. Uh, Literally, when he says lead that life, he says you need to walk in that life. And he's getting that notion from the Old Testament. The idea that uh, the way in which we walk in life, viewing, viewing life as a journey, the way in which we walk is how we live our life. Think about Psalm chapter or Psalm 1. Blessed is the, one, the man who does not walk according to the counsel of the ungodly. And so the point is that when God calls us, he calls us to serve him in the capacity that we are presently in. And so he, so looking at verse 20, he says, each one should remain in the condition or literally the calling in which he was called. This is what we call Christian vocation. A vocation is literally a calling and God has called you to do the job that you find yourself in. This was another major rediscovery during the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther in particular really promoted this notion that each and every Christian has a calling. You see, throughout the Middle Ages, uh, the church had divided society between what they called the religious, which composed of priests and monks and nuns, and then everyone else. And they they, they, they said that only the religious people are doing the things that are holy and glorifying to God. Everyone else just needs to do their job. And it was as if they had... Uh, uh, they had subcontracted the religious life to certain people. And, and the priest and the monks and the nuns says, we'll do the religious things while you guys do everyday work. Martin Luther, in examining scripture, and in particular passages like the one we have before us today, he said, no. No, each and every Christian has a calling that is glorifying to God. So even if you find yourself being a shoemaker, if you make a good product and charge a fair price, you will bring more glory to God than anything a monk or a nun or a priest could do. That is our calling. The situation we have in life, if we do it with all of our heart as unto the Lord, it brings glory to God. Now, this, of course, assumes that one's profession uh, uh, upon their calling as a Christian is lawful and not innately sinful. If you were a thief... When you were converted, you need to change your job. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, uh, which are composed of a, a number of new believers, and he says, you need to keep your day job. Your new status as a believer does not mean you get a radically different change. If you're married, stay married. If you're a slave, you stay a slave. You keep your job because God has called you to that job. And he says, this is my rule in all the churches. This is not just some temporary command just for the Corinthian context, but rather this is a Christian virtue that all of us need to follow. 
And I would, if you were to identify that virtue, what is the root issue underneath all of this? As Paul says, live the life or walk the life that God has called you to. I think the root, the root virtue here is contentment. Contentment, being happy with what God gives you. Being uh, uh, satisfied with whatever the Lord has bestowed upon you and doing whatever he's called you to do with all of your heart. The Apostle Paul uh, characterizes this virtue of contentment in Philippians chapter 4 when he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We often quote that verse in uh, settings in which we are going to do some amazing task, whether, uh, you know, some uh, sporting event or some other, uh, you know, uh, difficult task in life. In the context of this passage, the Apostle Paul's talking about contentment. Being happy with what you have, even if it's a little. Being content with the job you've been given because the Lord has called you to do it. Now, contentment is not complacency. The Apostle Paul will go on talking to the slaves and and, and talk about how they may have opportunity to gain their freedom. And if they do, they should do it. Contentment is not complacency. It's not just saying, oh, ho, hum. I I hate my life, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Paul is not urging the status quo, nor is he imposing hard and fast social structures that we can never traverse. But what he is saying is that no matter what situation we have in life, no matter what our status is, we can serve the Lord to the fullest of our capacity. In other words, we do not need to change who we are or what we do to be an effective Christian. So let's look at some of the examples he gives. He starts off by talking about the difference between those who are circumcised or uncircumcised. He says, were you circumcised when you were called? Here he's referring to the Jews. According to the Old Testament law, all Jewish males were to be circumcised on the eighth day. And that circumcision was a visible sign and seal that they belonged to the covenant community. But having that physical sign... And living in a Greco-Roman community such as Corinth may have brought upon them a certain social stigma, which some Jewish Christians may wish to have concealed. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, were you circumcised when you were called? Don't seek to remove it. Conversely, there were the Gentile Christians who were converted to, uh, there were the Gentiles who converted to Christianity upon whom there was pressure for them to be circumcised in order to make them more socially acceptable as Jewish Christians. This is the topic that the Apostle Paul addresses in the whole book of Galatians, where he says, absolutely not. You should not be circ- or seek circumcision as a Gentile convert. And it's interesting what the Apostle Paul says about that in Galatians 5.11 when he says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And so we see here that the, the temptation for Gentiles who were converted to Christianity to then get circumcision, the temptation was, was somehow in order to avoid persecution. 
in order to have a more socially acceptable type of religious experience, they sought this change. But we see both of these changes, whether it's the Gentile, the Jew who wants to become like a Gentile, or the Gentile who wants to become like a Jew, both of these changes were made in order to improve one's social status. They were concerned about what other people thought about them. And the Apostle Paul said, no, do not change because God has called you that way. And he goes on to talk about how in Christ Jesus, these distinctions which so define us in the world, whether it be the distinction of race or ethnicity, the distinction uh, between male and female, what we call biological sex, or more increasingly today we call gender, I think incorrectly, or even the difference between social status, slave or free. All of these distinctions which so define us in the world are eclipsed because we are all equally united to Christ Jesus. That's Paul's point in Galatians, that here in Christ Jesus, there is no Greek and Jew. There is no slave and free. There is no male and female. And he says the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Those distinctions which so define us in the world are eclipsed through our union with Christ. Now, I say that they are eclipsed because they are not totally done away with. That's Paul's point in the passage today. Becoming a Christian doesn't change, doesn't change the, uh, your, your gender. It doesn't change your social status. It doesn't change your ethnicity. But it radically, it, it relativizes those distinctions and it radically redefines them in light of our primary identity in Christ Jesus. It relativizes and redefines those social distinctions that are so important in the world. You see, in God's eyes, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, is irrelevant. It is irrelevant. What truly matters, Paul says, is keeping his commandments. Paul's reminding us of the fact that God doesn't look at outward appearances, but he looks at the heart. What he's saying here is similar to what he says in Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so Paul's really getting at the heart of the issue here. It doesn't matter in God's sight if you're Jew or Greek, if you're, if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. What really matters is if you seek to keep his commandments. And it's really interesting when Paul ta- says here that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything because he says the same exact phrase in the book of Galatians two times. In Galatians 5, 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then in Galatians 6, 15, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And if we take these three phrases and put them all together, what we see is that keeping God's commandments is the same thing as faith working through love, is the same thing as the new creation. Because love is a fulfillment of the law. And so what we see here is that while the social distinctions 
are eradicated or are eclipsed, each and every one of us as spirit-filled believers are agents of the new creation, bringing forth the fruits of the spirit in our everyday lives and beginning to fulfill in this life, not just some, but all of God's commands through love. That's what God is getting at here. The social distinctions that mattered in the Old Testament are now eclipsed and done away with in the New Testament because it's time for the new creation to come. And we bring the new creation about through faith working through love in our everyday, ordinary lives. So that's why Paul reiterates his point in verse 20 when he says that every believer should pursue their calling with contentment in life. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. He goes on in verse 21 to now address not just ethnic divisions, the difference between Jew and Gentile, but now social distinctions, the difference between slave and free. And so he addresses the bondservants in verse 21. This word translated bondservant is the same Greek word that could be translated slave. Now, in the ancient world, in the Roman world, as much as one-third of the population were slaves. One could be born as a slave, or they could sell themselves into slavery to get themselves out of debt. Life as a slave in the ancient world varied greatly depending on what type of task you performed or how well your master treated you. You could be a galley slave or working in a coal mine, in which case life would be pretty rough. Or you could have it pretty good if you were a household slave. There were even some slaves who uh, had the authority of entire households. Thinking, think of Joseph in Potiphar's house. Uh, things could have been very good. Slaves performed all sorts of tasks. There were uh, uh, doctors, uh, uh, barbers. It doesn't matter. All, all of the things that we think of ordinary life, for the most part, were performed by slaves. And manumission, that is being freed as a slave, was actually quite common, which is why the Apostle Paul entertains that possibility in verse 21. He says, if you have opportunity, take advantage of that opportunity to be, free, uh, to be freed. And Corinth itself was a city that was populated by a number of prominent freedmen, that is, those who were formerly slaves, but had gained their freedom and made a name for themselves. And so it's important to understand the context of slavery in the ancient world and distinguish that between what we typically think of as slavery uh, from our most more immediate history, slavery in the American South. Slavery in the American uh, tradition was initially sourced by man-stealing. Those slaves taken from Africa were kidnapped and brought over to the New World. Such an act of man-stealing is emphatically condemned by God's word. Paul mentions this in 1 Timothy 1.10, and the law itself in Exodus 21.16 condemns man-stealing. It's actually a capital offense. Furthermore, slavery in the American South was race-based. You were a slave because you were black. In the ancient world, it was not so. And slavery in the American South was lifelong. There was no hope of gaining your freedom. You were a slave as, uh, for, the, for the entirety of your life, unless, of course, you could escape. 
And so it's important, I think, to distinguish between slavery as it existed in the ancient world and slavery as, as we see in our more uh, immediate American tradition. And, and it's helpful to understand that when we see Paul's exhortation to the slaves, when he says, were you a slave when you were called? He says, do not be concerned about it. In other words, don't let it bother you. In other words, slaves should not be consumed with trying to obtain their freedom. It shouldn't be their only goal in life. But rather, slaves should be consumed with obeying their masters in the Lord. As we saw in a reading of the law today in Ephesians chapter 6, bondservants, obey your masters as unto the Lord. And so here we see that, that are these social distinctions, which are so important in the world, are not only relativized, but they're redefined. And we see here that even the most menial tasks that may be performed by a slave are now infused with eternal significance when we do them as unto the Lord and not unto man. Slaves have been given a job to do in Christ Jesus. Now, again, Paul's not imposing these hard and fast social constraints. He's not opposed to bettering one's situation in life. Uh, when he says, if you do have the opportunity to gain your freedom, take advantage of it. But he's saying it shouldn't be the end-all and be-all. Oftentimes we tell our children that they need to go to school and study hard and get good grades so that they can get in a good school, and that they can get in a good school so that they can get a good job, so that they can make lots of money. That's, that's typically what we tell our children, at least that's what we hear repeated throughout our society. But I think a good question we need to ask is why? What's your motivation? There's nothing wrong with getting a good job and making a lot of money. But is that the only purpose? See, the Apostle Paul says it doesn't matter what kind of job you have. You need to do it as unto the Lord. If your answer to that question is not for the glory of God then you are misguided. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how successful it, uh, you are. It doesn't matter how great of a school you got yourself into. If it's not done unto the glory of God, if it's only done unto man, it is pointless. And so Paul's advice here to the bond servants, his point is that they do not have to wait to be free to begin serving the Lord. They could do it now by obeying their earthly masters. And that's because, in one sense, the Christian slave is already free because of Christ Jesus. And so here we see that relativizing those hard and fast social structures we see in the world. The Apostle Paul could turn those on their head in verse 22 when he says that the the bondservant is actually free. And the one who is free is actually a slave. Now, what type of freedom is the Apostle Paul talking about? He's not talking about earthly freedom, clearly. What he's talking about, the freedom that the the Christian bondservant has, is the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. Freedom from the curse of the law and the bondage of sin and Satan, which ultimately leads to death. We are freed from the law as a covenant of works, and so we are no longer need to earn our standing before God. Indeed, we have been given new identities in Christ as new creatures. As I'll tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And in Galatians 5, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
And so he reminds the Christian slaves of who they are in Christ. They are free, even as they find themselves as earthly slaves. This reminds me of that show that I haven't seen many episodes, but it's called, I think it's called The Undercover Boss, in which they get the heads of these Fortune 500 companies to go undercover and and work entry-level jobs in their own company. It's interesting because they find themselves in this new position where they're being told what to do. Now, do they have to listen to the people in in those entry-level positions? Technically, no. They own the whole company. But they do it, they work hard. Why? Because the company belongs to them. Likewise, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are an heir of all things. You are a a co-heir together with Christ Jesus. You are going to get the entire cosmos. You are free in him. You are the Lord of all, subject to none. And yet, you find yourself in this earthly position, this calling that God has put you into. So now we can do these jobs, knowing that we're already free, knowing we're going to inherit the entire cosmos through Christ. It radically redefines and reorientates our everyday life, right? Likewise, likewise, the bond, uh, the, the, the one who is free in this life, you know, think of the CEOs, think of the people who have made it in life. Those people are actually bond servants of Christ. In other words, we have been freed in order to serve. Even our earthly masters have a master who is in heaven, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6. And so here we see a redefinition of what we typically think of as freedom. Freedom is not autonomy. Autonomy is, uh, literally means that you write your own laws. You do your own thing. You can live your life uh, however you want without any consequences. That is not freedom. That is not biblical freedom. Actually, that is enslavement. As Christ says, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. True freedom, true Christian freedom is serving a benevolent Lord who loves you. Scripture doesn't talk about complete autonomy. The question that Scripture asks is, whom shall you serve? Are you going to serve yourself and your own pleasures, leading to death and destruction? Will you serve Satan, who wants nothing more to kill, steal, and destroy? Or will you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who came so that you might have life and have it more abundantly? So even those who are free in earthly matters are bondservants of Christ. That's because, as Paul reminds us once again in verse 23, we have been bought with a price. He reminds us, as he did at the end of of chapter 6, that we are not our own, but we have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We all belong to him, whether slave or free, in this life. And this, as we reflected at the end of chapter 6, is not terrifying. It is comforting. Indeed, it is our only comfort in life and in death that we do not belong to ourselves. As we seek to apply this passage today, perhaps at first glance, when I was reading to you about circumcision and reading to you about slavery, you would think, well, this has nothing to do with us. We don't really care about circumcision anymore. At least, I mean, when we think of it, we think of it as a cosmetic procedure for our uh, baby boys. 
We don't have slaves anymore, so this passage doesn't relate to us. Stepping back and taking a closer look at this passage, we see the, the issues of identity and the issues of vocation coming to the fore. And we see that this passage is immensely practical as we apply it to our lives. You see, in our society today, the world tells us that we are nothing more than results of a cosmic accident and that there is no ultimate meaning in life. And so, as red-blooded Americans, we need to create our own meanings in life. We need to be the best that we can be. We need to create not only our own meanings in life, but create our own identities through our own willpower, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And so you see people in the world who seek to identify themselves and and define their identity through their career or perhaps uh, through their social social media identity. Or or even today, more and more, we see the lie that people can uh, create an identity for themselves through their own willpower or through their own sexual orientation or just that we could even create our own gender. That not even our DNA holds us down doesn't matter what our DNA says. It's however you feel through your own willpower. You can create your own willpower. Or sorry, you can create your own identity. Indeed, you can create your own universe. Well, not only is this impossible, this is horribly oppressive. This is horribly oppressive. To tell people that they need to justify, not only create, but then justify their own existence. That is completely uh, uh, impossible and condemning. If your life doesn't reflect your uh, Instagram page, if somehow you lose your job, if you, uh, uh, you know, if, if you don't live up to these expectations of potentials that you create for yourself, you feel condemned because you identify yourself as an old fallen creature in Adam. Indeed, trying to justify your own existence undoubtedly leads to the increasing rates of suicide in this world. And yet the good news of the gospel today is that you are out of the rat race. You are out of the rat race because Christ has won the race for you. You do not need to justify your own existence because you have been justified in Christ. So Paul tells us, do not become slaves of men. We live our lives And we are so consumed with what other people think about us when we should be thinking primarily about how God views us in his son. We are perfectly justified and righteous in his sight. We are perfectly accepted in his sight. Indeed, we are the heirs of all things. And when we think of ourselves in that vein, as new creatures in Christ, all of these other distinctions are put in their place. And yet Paul ends his exhortation, repeat, uh, ends this passage by repeating the same exhortation. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. We see that he repeats his exhortation for the third time, but he adds to it the fact that we are not alone. or We're not doing this alone or in isolation, but rather we are doing it before the face of God and in the presence of God and with God as we go about our daily lives. May God grant to us the grace of contentment 
and the ability to do our callings in life with zeal as unto the Lord. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that although you were in the form of God, eternal, the eternal Son of God who was and continues to be God, you were pleased to be born in the fullness of time and to be born in the form of a servant, to live a life of suffering and obedience for us even to the point of death on the cross. And you did that in order to gain freedom for us, freedom from the condemnation and curse of the law so that you might give us life and you continue to give us your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude. May we never forget who we are in you and may we live lives that are worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And we ask this in your name. Amen.